0: You're listening to the Ready, Set, Cloud podcast, a show about trending and difficult topics on serverless and in the cloud. I'm back for season two and here to start you off with a forward look into serverless. I brought Jeremy Daly on the show to talk about what a post-serverless world looks like. We talk about what that even means, how we're gonna get there, and the steps we've already taken to show that it's possible. Ready, set, let's go. The serverless community likes to talk about one thing, serverless. Personally, I talk about it all the time and engage in conversations with others about it on a daily basis. We usually revolve around the same handful of topics, replaying the same conversations over and over again with the same general message. It makes me wonder, is it time to stop? What do we need to do to put these important but tired conversations down? There's tons of innovation happening in the cloud right now, yet we're still getting hung up on things like cold starts. So I asked the voice of serverless to come onto the show and kick off season two with a different mindset. Jeremy, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Alan.
0: Yes, happy to have you. And I've missed listening to your podcast, so I decided to start one myself and invite you on to get my fix. So thank you very much for being here.
1: Well, I appreciate your podcast and I appreciate the newsletter that you do. Um, As you know, it is a lot to keep these things up and uh, running a startup right now, I had to choose between sort of podcast or the newsletter. I think the newsletter adds a lot more value and shares a lot more voices from the community. So that's what I'm doing right now. And then hopefully, you know, if things settle down a little bit, we'll get back to the podcast as well.
0: Good. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, So chances are, everybody listening right now already knows who you are.
1: But why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself just in case? Yeah. So thank you. I don't know if I'm the voice of serverless, but I certainly am very vocal about it. So I've actually been doing technology for, I don't know, 27 years now, something like that. I started a web development company out of my dorm room way back in 1997. Fast forward to several startups and working in AWS since 2008 and then learning and falling in love with serverless or the serverless paradigm in 2015 once Lambda went GA I've been writing about it, uh, like you said, I have the podcast. I've got my newsletter uh, off by none, and just you know discovered some amazing things that you could do with it and went and started speaking and and doing all these things, got really involved with the community. AWS made me a serverless hero, which I know you are as well, which is just a great program. Love being a part of that and and getting to argue with all the other people in the serverless uh, hero space. I've been working for a bunch of different companies, uh, different startups, building things using serverless and uh, and hybrid technologies. And then uh, after doing a couple of years at Serverless Inc, building their Serverless Cloud product, we decided to spin that out as its own company. And that's where Amp comes from. And, and that's what I've been working on as the uh, CEO uh, for the last, geez, it's been 18 months now or something like that. So it's been a while.
0: Time flies, it really does. I remember seeing you at reInvent a couple of years ago, handing out the stickers. Like, yep. Yes, I got, I got an early sticker, I got a first run. So a lot of people invite you onto podcasts and conferences because you have a really good grasp of what basically the state of serverless is. And you have really good forward-looking vision on where you think that it's going. And from what I've heard from you the past few years, you're usually right. And that, that's really exciting for me to have you on the show so we can talk about that because I think the conversations that we're having nowadays are just replay. There's not a whole lot of new ones for whatever reason. And I, want to, I just want to ask, like from the very beginning, it's like, have, have we adopted and accepted serverless to a point where we can consider it to be mainstream?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a good question because my, my definition of success, I think, of any technology is when it just fades into the background. It just becomes part of the environment or the ecosystem where you're, you're no longer thinking specifically about I have to implement it this specific way. It's just this is the way that it's done now. It just becomes commonplace. And what I found with serverless is that people were doing this sort of even before we came up with the term serverless and started building lambda functions. Because if you if you go back and you think about the history, DynamoDB, uh, SQS, S3, all those early services, um, even Kinesis to some degree, though Chris Munns will argue with me, um, is serverless uh, in this in the sense that you know that again it was just sort of like an API that gave you access to this amazing compute power, and you didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to worry about memory and setting up servers and, and, and things like that, or worrying about virtual machines or containers. That was the early implementation of it. I think where um, the breakdown was is that in order to have the compute piece, you had to spin up some sort of a virtual machine in order to make that happen. Um, and and I think that was that was the moment that we saw this this major progress happen was when Lambda came out. And Lambda wasn't really the first; there were others that were doing this sort of serverless, you know, quote unquote serverless compute before Lambda. But Lambda is what really kind of integrated everything together with with all the other services AWS had. So it's been ten years since Lambda was announced, and so we've seen a, a huge adoption of Lambda functions. But what we've also seen is just a huge sort of ecosystem of uh, components built around it that I would consider serverless. And even like Memento and and what is happening with topics and cache, the cache there, like those are the kind of things where it changes the way you think about how you have to provision these things. So for me, when I'm building an application now, I don't even really think about serverless anymore. I've just become so used to using all these tools that I'm like, I'm just going to use this because that's the way to do it. Um, And I think you see a lot of companies now, certainly the companies that I've worked with um, recently and a lot of people that I talk to, where it's like they're just grabbing these tools because those are the tools that they know to get something done. Nobody's writing their own custom, uh, you know, queue system anymore. You're just using SQS or you're using EventBridge or you're using something like that. So I think a lot of these things have become commonplace, even if you're not using the compute that we consider, quote unquote, serverless. And we can have a whole discussion about serverless containers. Uh, maybe sometime in the future. So I think that for most things, when you're building an application in the cloud right now, you're using serverless. I think that the cloud has become very, very hybrid. I think we've all sort of come to the agreement where it's like, I don't need to be a serverless purist so much as I need to be someone who's thinking, what's the most optimal way to build this in the cloud? And that means I'm going to use the tools that are available to me. It just so happens that probably 80% of those tools now, if not more, are serverless. I love that mentality. And it makes me wonder because a lot of
0: people are still dismissive of it. I see plenty of enterprises that are all in, like Taco Bell is a really good example. I think they just finished a migration to go 100% serverless and they're obviously a really, really big company. But I also see a ton of enterprises that see the word serverless and they just are dismissive of it. They're like, no, no, we're not going to do that. That's for toy projects, whatever it is. Why do you think that is? Like, What is it that is generally misunderstood about serverless that still, to this day, are turning people off of it?
1: I think it's a positioning problem, um, maybe a marketing problem, right? I mean, the term serverless is almost meaningless at this point for, for many things because we've seen that moniker slapped on so many different things. There's some articles recently that talk about the post-serverless error, and uh, I think we've kind of entered there, right? And so that's why I go back to sort of my response to your first question is, if you think about it specifically as serverless, like I have to be a serverless purist, if that's your mindset, then I don't want to say you're gonna fail, but you're gonna run counter to a lot of the institutionalized thinking. I forget that quote that Werner mentioned in his keynote that was something like, uh, like the the most dangerous words are like, we've always done it this way. Right. Like yep. and yep. I, I think about that all the time because when people say like, well, yeah, but this is how we do it. And it's like, well, but why? Like challenge your assumptions on that. So um, to sort of answer, I think the larger question is why are some people dismissive of it? It's because they don't understand it. They don't, and that part is, is they're probably using quite a bit of it anyways. Now, if you're like 100% on prem and you're just focused on those days, and look, there are all kinds of reasons why you may want to be on prem for for certain types of businesses and so forth. But if you're if you're in the cloud and you're building anything in the cloud, you're using serverless services, even if you don't know it. I mean, I am. Is a serverless service, right? I mean, you, you probably don't think about it that way, but if you are if you're generating permissions and authorizing access to something, that's a service that you don't have to do anything. That's running serverlessly, right? And maybe this goes back to the compute aspect of it, because I do think a lot of people confuse the compute with the general sort of concept, or at least the mindset of serverless. So I think it's just a misunderstanding. And I don't think that the marketing and the positioning has helped with it. I don't think AWS has helped with it. Serverless Aurora was close. V1, V2 is far from serverless. Serverless Neptune, serverless OpenSearch or OpenSearch serverless, all these things. Like I get what they're trying to say. And I get that, yes, once you sort of provision it, then the operational side of things, uh, and again, they always AWS has been big on calling serverless an operational construct, which I never really agreed with. But that, to me, doesn't get to the heart of where you really need to be. So again, I think there's that confusion. There is just terms of what does it mean to be serverless, um, because I think you can be very, very serverless, and the compute piece of it is almost an afterthought, maybe.
0: I often get frustrated when people say, oh, serverless, you're talking about Lambda or you know, just functions as a service in, in general, really when it refers to a set of capabilities more so than it does compute. So you mentioned a little bit earlier moving into a post-serverless era. You described it a little bit, and I like the thought process, but I would like to hear you explain that a little bit more. Like, What, what does that mean to move into a post-serverless era?
1: Several years ago, I was at uh, I was at Reinvent, and I was at a, a breakfast with um, uh, a Jane Nair, who now heads up the, the the Lambda team. I think he's actually in charge of most serverless things uh, in those, around the Lambda stuff. Um, anyways, brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, guy from AWS, and uh, I was sitting with him, and he, he asked me a similar question. Sort of, and this was years ago. And he's like, when does serverless become like the thing or whatever? I forget the exact question, but basically I said that serverless just needs to be the way, right? Like it's just the way we build cloud applications. And so in terms of a post-serverless error, it, when serverless just becomes the default, like everything we build is using these types of serverless services. So I look at the post-serverless era as... I think we're getting very, very close to that, and I think we get close to that when we drop the word serverless from things. Like, um, it's just we're building in the cloud, and pretty much everything you're doing in the cloud, the operational pieces is, is pretty much taken care of for you. The scale is taken for you know scale to zero. And again, and and I and I'm I'm getting off topic on your on your question here, but this is something that bothers me dramatically: is that when we talk about scale to zero. Um, people are like, yeah, but your production will never scale to zero. It's like, yes, I get it. I I don't ever expect something in production to scale to zero most of the time, like if it's a a sustained workload. Um, I get that. And I'm willing to pay when the services are running. And I get that it may need to be provisioned and so forth. My problem is, is that don't tell me that I should be isolating all my workloads and separating everything into separate AWS accounts, and using separate production and development, and and uh, uh, every developer gets their own account and things like that, because you want that bulkhead, you want that security protection, but then tell me that I have to spin up a $700 a month open search cluster in every single one of those accounts if I want to have that isolation. That's where my problem is with, with the way that some of these things are being labeled. And so that's what I want. I want the ability for us to just say any service that is running at AWS, I should be able to scale that to zero so that I can use that high fidelity mode of that service in a developer account and not be paying to have an RDS cluster running or to be paying to have a a Neptune uh, cluster running or something like that, or even to have to pay for a shard for Kinesis. Like why can't that scale to zero or shut off if it's not being used automatically so that I can leverage the full capabilities of the cloud, but not have to pay for those when my developers aren't using those. And I think that goes back to where I think we need to be in this idea of a post-serverless era. is if you could build everything in the cloud that way, If everything could be built as these isolated, uh, high fidelity, full production parity environments, and you could use all the services and have all your IAM permissions and all of that stuff all built, and all running in this isolated mode, then I think companies would be more apt to adopt that as opposed to basically saying like, well, we have to you know spin up these uh, these separate development clusters here, and then maybe we'll do this weird shared thing where we'll, we'll allow developers from this account to have access to that. But then if we set up every developer with their own account, now we're worried about costs and all this other stuff, it just gets really, really confusing. So for me, I think that if all of the services in the cloud were truly elastic and scale to zero, Again, not for production, fully willing to pay for production services and when they're running, but for the purpose of development and having those high fidelity production parity environments that you can use, I think that's where we need to evolve to.
0: So let's say we got there. Let's say we got to a post-serverless era and we're a few years down the line in that. Are we caring about infrastructure at all? Like, is that something that we need to know? Is it something that we need to like, even down to like the service level, like let's say we've accepted the fact that everything skills and is elastic like that. Do we care what service it is? Should we?
1: I mean, when was the last time that you malloced memory or had to worry about garbage collection? Right. Like when, when was the last time that you, you had to even think about how JavaScript or any other interpreted language gets compiled and then runs on the machine for you? You don't worry about that stuff anymore. And as developers, we've accepted the fact that I think that the interpreter is going to do a pretty good job for me figuring out how to optimize the program that I've written in a way that is human readable, it's going to do a pretty good job optimizing that so that it will execute efficiently on some sort of processing system in the background. The cloud is just a massively distributed computer with all of these subsystems. And I've talked about this for a long time. SQS is a subsystem and DynamoDB is a subsystem and EventBridge is a subsystem or it's an event bus that communicates. And if you look at the cloud as more of a computer, What we've done as we've sort of evolved and continue to write applications for this, we've said, look, not only do we have this computer that's that's super powerful for us, but in order for us to run code on this computer, which is all we're doing at the end of the day, we have to write all of these complex machine, uh, like basically machine code instructions in order to tell the cloud how to connect all these different subsystems for us. And that's what we've done with infrastructure as code, right? So with infrastructure as code, you say, I want a API gateway and I want a Lambda function. And then here are the permissions my Lambda function has to have. And then here are the event sources for it. Oh, by the way, these are my memory settings. And even if you're not setting those things, they're being set. There's all these defaults that are sort of, you know, what I'd like to think are sane defaults, although not all of them are sane, but you're building all of these things and you're coding and specifically saying, I want this piece of infrastructure to do that. Imagine if you had to do that when you were writing a Python script that you had to go in and you had to say, okay, when this executes, this is the memory that I want. You just had to go in and do all that extra stuff. Like it it would make no sense. That's why we have higher level or higher order programming languages because we don't have to think about those underlying things. So imagine a world where you just wrote application code or you just wrote code, and then the cloud was smart enough to figure out which subsystems it needed to use in order to execute your code effectively and efficiently, and, uh, and even more importantly, cost effectively. I mean, Werner spent half of his keynote, an hour of his keynote talking about cost controls in the cloud. Yeah, it gets expensive, especially if you don't do it right. And if you make a mistake and you've got extra processing or loops or all these kind of things that happen, I mean, they had to add, you know, a loop detection to, to Lambda because it was such a problem. So I, I look at it and say, why are we as developers taking this computer and, and, and then wiring together these subsystems when it should just be able to figure it out for us? So I think that in the future, that infrastructure and whether we're using SQS or Kinesis or any of those things. Those are just implementation details that the system takes care of for us.
0: Now, the concepts are still going to be there, right? Like, you know, when you're building these applications that you mm-hmm. need to push something into a queue for a particularly high throughput to low throughput uh, type of processing. That's the part that's getting me a little bit is figuring out like, where's the perfect level of abstraction? And this is kind of where I want to turn to what you're doing right now with AMPS sure. because I'm just really liking what you guys are doing and how you're abstracting it. So I'm, let's first start with you know, your sales pitch, I guess, for lack of a better word. And then I'm just super curious at the thought process of how you're deciding where that perfect level of abstraction is.
1: Yeah, I think before I even get into the sales pitch, I mean, let, let's answer your question about knowing the concepts behind the scenes. Let's take JavaScript or any programming language, for example. You can write a brute force search on a sorted list, right? And everybody will laugh at you because that's not the right way to do it. If you've got a sorted list, right? Then, you know, you can split it and split it and split it and split it and find it that way and make a much more efficient search. There's no reason why you can't run a DynamoDB scan, even if the abstraction is built for you that allows you to do that, right? So you can make mistakes and you can program poorly regardless of what the abstraction is, I look at it and say, yes, you still need to know those concepts. You still need to understand distributed systems. And with AMPT, we basically say like, yeah, you still need to get that. Like you still need to understand that you're sending an event and that it's going to be asynchronously processed. So you're not going to immediately get a response from it other than an ID that, that tells you, okay, you know, this is the ID that Um, If it gets executed, maybe I can send it to a database or do something with it. So you still need to understand distributed systems, but that's a different type of computer that we're writing for. So we're writing code for a distributed systems computer, as opposed to something that just runs on our desktop or on a single threaded on on a server. So this is where we thought of, and this is the level of abstraction that we wanted to build with Amped. And so just to quickly go back, I'll give you the, the sales pitch. So Ampt started as essentially a way that you could just write application code. We wanted to eliminate everything in between, uh, essentially get rid of all infrastructure as codes. You didn't have to write Pulumi or Terraform or even serverless framework. You didn't have to write any of that stuff to specify what you needed. Instead, you just write your application code and then we figure out what you need for infrastructure and then we deploy that to an AWS account for you we kind of look at it as an autonomous software delivery service that does all of the account management for you, all of the provisioning, all of the monitoring, all of the optimizations, um, and essentially you just write application code. So you write your application code just like you would write any other node or JavaScript, TypeScript. You can use all the full stack frameworks we fully support Next um, and Astro, the back-end frameworks like Express or Fastify, uh, things like that, um, SSGs like... Um, 1T, anything that's JavaScript based, we take that code, we run it through a system, we call it runtime introspection. So we essentially run your code, we look at the AST, we do a little bit of static analysis, we figure out, okay, you have an event listener that wants to listen for a user.created event. So that means we have to, you know, create a rule in EventBridge or, oh, you're accessing a data table. So we know we need to create a DynamoDB table for you. Um, Oh, you have a label on that table. Okay, well, we need to add a GSI, right? So all of these things that we figure out based off of what your application code is telling us to do. And there is no IAC step, by the way. So we don't convert this into infrastructure as code and then deploy that and be like, okay, there you go. You're on your own. This is not CDK. This is all the way through to actually deploying the infrastructure, configuring the infrastructure for you in AWS, and then having that constant feedback loop so that if there are problems, we know about it and we can make adjustments. And then also the optimization piece that can actually switch your infrastructure up based off of runtime telemetry so that it can be optimized and run for you. Essentially, the idea is for it to be your companion, to let you build things in the cloud without all of that undifferentiated heavy lifting as we always love to talk about. Of course. I'm a big fan of two things
0: that Amped is. Uh, One, just do it for me. Big fan of that. I will always rely on expertise of people who do it for a living over myself. But also just opinionated frameworks in general. When you were talking about your uh, infrastructure analyzer or whatever you called it, you were saying that it was going to go optimize, but optimize is opinionated because what if some people want to optimize for cost? Other people want to optimize for performance. I'm actually curious on that one. What do you guys optimize for or do you let people choose?
1: Yeah. So right now we just optimize for both cost and performance, but I think that this is probably a good time to bring up what I call productized patterns. Look at it this way. The easiest way to describe what AMP does is Imagine that you write some application with at least a general knowledge that you were going to be interacting with certain types of cloud primitives. If you write that application and then you were to hand it to an Alan Helton or like a Ben Kehoe or you know one of these cloud experts that know exactly what needs to be done and say, okay, I've written this application code. Now I need you to take it and build all the infrastructure as code that's needed and make sure that it's optimized and everything's running great and all my Lambda functions are tuned and all that kind of stuff. If you were to hand your code to that expert and they were to do all that work and then deploy it for you, that's the first step of what AMP does. AMP is that expert for you, but it's automated, right? It's completely built in. It's all productized. And so what it does is it takes all of that code and it says, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. You actually are trying to respond to an HTTP request and you need to cache it and some of these other things. All right, great. We'll spin up a CDN. We'll route it to a Lambda Furl. Um, And we'll serve it up, uh, you know, we'll expose an HTTP endpoint and and do it this way. And like, oh, I see. You want to actually respond to a change in an item in DynamoDB or in a data table. So, okay, we're going to set up a DynamoDB stream for you. And then we're going to go ahead and execute this code on the other end of the DynamoDB stream. Oh, and then by the way, we'll build in retries and failover and some of these other things that will automatically be happened there. So those patterns that we identify, and those are simple patterns. I should tell you about our static asset handling pattern because it's pretty cool. It's one of those things that you wouldn't want to maintain on your own because it's so complex, but when the system can do it, when it can have that higher order thinking and it can do it for you, it's pretty impressive. But So we take those patterns, we identify those patterns, we say, okay, we've been doing this for years and years and years. We know how to implement that solution for you. Like, How do you solve that problem? And we can just map your code to the other end of it, right? So that process and does everything it needs to do. So we can identify those patterns and then we can deploy those patterns for you and then deploy your code into those patterns. And then you can even adjust those patterns. Those patterns have a different sort of knobs that we can adjust on them. But the idea is to say, if you're doing something that is, again, I'll just, I'll use change data capture as a, as an example, you write some code to a DynamoDB table. You want to react to that code. Okay. So it's a pretty simple pattern but there's edge cases to those patterns, whatever. But think of a pattern like that, maybe a little more complex. We deploy that for your application. And then another person comes along, we deploy that for their application. And then another person comes along and so forth. Right? So we get thousands of people using this pattern that we've we've created for you. And then you know, user 1001 has an issue, right? They find an edge case on it. So we go and we fix that edge case. And then every other user it's fixed for, right? And they never run into it again. It's like crowdsourcing these sort of things. So rather than you downloading a pattern off of the serverless land website, which is great by the way, or even using one of, uh, uh, Lee Gilmore just launched a new serverless patterns uh, page, right? So grab one of those and use it. But then remember, you own that pattern, right? You own any upgrades to that pattern. You own the operational complexity of that pattern in the sense that you don't have to manage the infrastructure that it's running on, but you do have to manage all those interactions between it. You're still responsible for that. The goal with productized patterns is to say, look, We're going to give you those same type of patterns that you would get from Lee or from the serverless land site or some of the patterns that I've released in the past. We're going to give you those exact patterns, but they're productized. So they're going to be managed for you while they're running in your AWS accounts. And if there's issues with those, those can be fixed and everybody benefits from the fix of those. Ooh, love that. And really, I think that's like the next legitimate logical
0: step to get to that post-serverless era because half of the articles that you read nowadays are here are the best practices for X, Y, or Z. Right. Implement it and own it. And that doesn't move us along very quickly because everybody's posting best practices and whether or not they're the exact same, you know, probably not. But putting them in as a, a productized asset then you can guarantee everyone's doing the same thing. Then it is actually a best practice versus just an opinion. So uh, we're running a little bit low on time. And I really just want to get the forward look from you. What should the community, tech community, because I'm not going to say the serverless community, what mm. should the tech community be focusing on in 2024?
1: I think what we need to be looking forward to is we, we need to start figuring out how do we get to that post-serverless error. That means putting pressure on... Other companies and the providers to give us the types of primitives that will allow us to, again, isolate them, scale them to zero when they're in development mode and things like that. That's a big thing that we have to do as a community. Again, I love what Memento does where they're like, you know, saying, no, it's not serverless unless it does this, this, and this. I think there's a little bit of wasted breath there because I don't think, you know, that people are going to change. Uh, they're still going to use that term because they can capitalize on it. But what we have to do is we have to really push to say, look, I don't care if you call it serverless or not. I don't care if when I'm running it in production that it's going to cost me a minimum of $690 per month. I mean, I wish it didn't, but but you got to give me a development version of that. I have to have a development version of that because I need to be able to isolate my workloads so that my developers can work better. So I think that's the biggest thing that we should be Asking for because I just don't believe in local development. It's so hard. I mean, LocalStack does an amazing job, and it's very, very cool what they do. Um, SSTs live lambda reload is very, very cool. Thunder had something I think it was called Sidekick before before they they were acquired. Um, and so, like that, it's it's really cool what people are doing to get local development to seem great, but. The other thing is, is that, look, you know, I see people spinning stuff up on Gitpod and code spaces and stuff like that. Like how much of that can you set up and run in those environments, right? Like, I mean, like just use the cloud, like use the full power of the cloud, run things in the cloud. And I guess maybe another uh, pitch for Amped, and I'll get back to your question, is one of the things we did is we like, look, local development is great. I want the feel of local development. I want that fast feedback loop. In Ampt, you write everything locally and we just run a single There's a little watcher behind the scenes. You change a file, we diff the file, we stream that file directly into your developer sandbox. That's a separate AWS account running in the cloud. We redeploy the changes And that is available in about 300 milliseconds, right? So the feedback loop is so fast. So I make a change by the time I jump over to Postman or to Insomnia or refresh my browser or whatever I'm doing, it's instantaneously there. And of course, the other thing is, is that I I mean I've been a front end developer in my previous lives. I'm not quite a front end developer anymore because they've become too complex. Like Next and and Remix and all mm-hmm. those things are just so hard to use. I I mean I guess if you know how to use them, they're not super hard. But um but we but we do love you know React and Vue and Next and anything you're writing that has that sort of front end thing. We added a full stack. Uh, we call it a local dev server, so you can actually run your local dev st- server in the AMP context, so you can have your React app running locally or your Next app running locally, um, you make a change, a code change to those, those automatically rebuild and show you that on local hosts, right? Because you want that super fast feedback loop for it. But the great thing is, is that you can also be updating your APIs behind the scenes or doing other things like that, that you change those they are deployed in a few hundred milliseconds. And then that front end code from your local host can interact with those remote resources. And you get that just this crazy fast, hyper productive feedback loop. And then the second you're ready to be like, Hey, I want somebody to look at this. You type in share, it creates a preview account, or you create a PR and it will automatically generate previews for you. You make changes to the PR, it automatically updates and redeploys. Like we've just I think solved the massive pains of 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 cloud development with this thing there, but we're we're blocked in so many ways because of the isolation model that aWS and a lot of other companies sort of refuse to adopt so going back to to the question that's the thing that's the biggest thing for me is that we have to settle on this fact that it says you can't have half of your services that need to be running all the time and the other half that will will give me the characteristics of this sort of scale to zero development type mode thing because it just makes it super difficult. And I can't give my users a really great, uh, you know, RDS Postgres experience without using like Neon or something like that, but I can't give them that experience with an AWS native service because you won't let me scale that down to zero, right? Or you're going to make me jump through hoops and I'm going to have to spin up a separate account where I have a shared cluster and then I've got to do all the routing. It's just too much, right? So we've got to get to that point. And if we can get to that point, I think you're going to see everybody shifting to a, this post serverless era where you're just going to be able to to build more complex applications because you're going to be able to run and test those in isolated environments.
0: So let me ask you one more question. Sure. Uh, based on Based on that. Is this something that we should legitimately be expecting from big cloud vendors like AWS and Azure and GCP, these productized patterns? Or is this something that maybe the post-serverless era is all other vendors that just sit on top of these, you know, giant cloud vendors?
1: Yeah, I I think that uh, AWS has a track record of not being able to deliver um, developer-friendly um, or full full developer-friendly experiences. And that's nothing against AWS. I think the problem is it's certainly nothing to do with the amazing people that have tried to build these things. I think it has to do with casting too wide a net. And when you are trying to build an abstraction that's going to work for everyone from a small business to some you know Fortune 500 company, And it's got to support everything from JavaScript to uh, Rust to go to Java, which is why we get things like Snapstart because people refuse to stop using Java and they're like, it's just too slow on Lambda functions. When you try to build something and paint with a very broad brush, then it becomes very, very hard to make some of these things work. So I do not think that AWS will deliver a solution or that GCP or Azure will deliver a solution. I mean, we've seen what they've done with Amplify. Amplify is very cool, but it is also... I don't know. It's very rough around the edges, right? So for the happy path, it works great. The second you deviate, people are ejecting, and then you're left with a mountain of code that gets generated that you're not really sure what to do with. You mentioned earlier this idea of opinionated, and I think that's where companies deliver value, right? When they create an opinionated experience that solves your problem, not solves everybody's problem. You can't solve everybody's problem. So I do think that you know, for people who want to build on Vercel, like Vercel supports or solves a very uh, you know, a very difficult problem like you know edge caching and edge compute and some of these other things for building Next.js sites. Like it's very cool. Fly.io solves a lot of problems if you just want to launch containers and scale some containers and, and have a database and some of these things. Flight control. Like I mean, all these companies are doing really really cool things that are just eventually ending up on AWS and running on top of them. And I'll, I'll just throw this out there. Like I think Vercel is using productized patterns. Like the way that they deploy what they do is a productized pattern. Now it's a very specific pattern that they use you know, that for, for pretty much everybody that they they do. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of productized patterns that need to be created. To do everything, but you don't need to do everything, right? You just need to solve a few problems for certain customers, and you can build a business around that, and and probably help a lot of people. So I think that vendors outside of these major cloud providers are going to find ways to deliver on these patterns that are going to solve you know problems for uh, for customers that are in different situations, maybe not niches, but whatever, um, you know, some somewhere around that. So I do think that AWS and these others are not going to solve the problem directly. Although, I mean, if you think about it some of what they're doing with like EventBridge pipes and some of these other things, like they're almost these productized patterns. Now, again, they're, they're small or step functions, for example, and the, the Workflow Studio. Like these are very cool things that you know, they may solve a particular type of workload. I mean, um, another thing coming to mind, the, the, uh, the ETLs, the automated ETLs that go from like Dynamo to, you know, to S3 and some of these things. These are productized patterns that they're building for us right now. The question is, is how do you use all those? How do you leverage all of those? And is there a way to bring them all together? That's what we're trying to do with AMP to say, look, let's use that productized pattern that they built, and then let's build on top of it by giving you easier access to it. And I think you're going to see a lot of companies trying to do this because, I mean, to me, this is the future of cloud development. It's not worrying about, you know, uh, going in under the hood and, and trying to to figure everything out. It's like I just want to start my car and drive it. I don't want to have to go in and you know change the spark plugs and and figure out uh, you know how to optimize it. I'll let a mechanic do that and let that be productized so that I don't have to worry about it.
0: Ooh, with that one, I think we could just do a mic drop and walk off stage.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's,
0: that's really good. I think there's a lot of trust that's going to have to be built uh, here in the next couple of years to, yep. just to make sure. Like, I don't think we have a lot of cloud providers outside of the big ones that get as much trust as a mechanic does. Yeah. Obviously, the, like a mechanic, people don't trust them in general, but that's they do awesome know true. that. <laughs> 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 They do know that mechanics know what they're doing. So I I think there's a lot of trust that that's going to be built up in the next couple of years to help facilitate everything that you're saying. Yeah, maybe
1: the mechanic analogy might have been a little bit wrong. I mean, I think about it this way. It's like, you know, again, there's ways to customize things. Maybe a smart TV is a better example. Like, I mean, all of what happens inside a TV, they just ship you that TV and it's there. If there's a problem with one of the services that runs on the TV, they can usually just send an update and then everybody gets that update, right? So you have a lot of control over that TV. You can customize things. There's a lot of things that you can do there, but it's very, very easy for you to do that. You don't need to know how everything works behind the scenes to make that work. And then they can actually deliver updates that make the experience better for you. And that's sort of how I look at where the cloud needs to get to is to say, it's got to be configurable but it's got to be upgradable and things have to happen you know, behind the scenes. We see a little bit of this when DynamoDB gets better or Lambda gets a new feature and so forth. But I think we can take that up one more level um, and just give people the ability to just write their application code, focus on delivering value to their customers and not worry about you know, deciding what the right memory setting is for a Lambda function or whether it should run on Lambda or Fargate or some other service. I love it. Move past, solve the business problem. That's the way. Well, all right, Jeremy. Awesome. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time, appreciate the insights as always. Uh, I look forward to seeing what Amped comes out with and what you have to say about the industry in general this year. So, thank you.
1: Great to be here. Thank you. Bye.
0: That's it for this episode of the Ready Set Cloud podcast. Thanks for joining me and remember to follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Alan Helton, and we're out of here.